The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Our scripture reading today is Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 44. If you're using the black Bible that's in front of you, you'll find this on page 849. Mark 12, starting in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls himself Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation." And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had and all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. We're still in the book of Mark, and Pastor Jonathan had the week off, and um, we are blessed as a church not only to have elders that can fill in the pulpit and give Jonathan time out, but also young men like Connor and Brady who have Brady just preached not too long ago, and uh, Connor's going to preach this morning, and we are blessed, brother, to have you uh, to be able to come and share the word, and I'm going to pray with you real quick, and then we'll get after it, all right? Lord, thank you for this man. Thank you for his heart for you, um, his desire to see much made of you. Lord, I ask that you would just remove any uh, anxiety or stress that he is feeling as he steps up um, today to speak and teach um, your word from Mark this morning. Lord, give us the Holy Spirit to hear and receive uh, the words that he is going to share with us this morning from your word. Lord, just give him the peace and the, the confidence, not in himself, but in you, knowing that it is not his words that are going to sway us, but it is you and your Holy Spirit and your word uh, that will break and change our hearts. Lord, we just ask that you watch over him and guide him. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Thank you, Tom. And good morning, everyone. It will serve you well to keep your copy of Scripture open there in front of you. And as you know, as uh, Tom alluded to, we have been marching through the book of Mark for quite some time now. And our reading today comes to us from the 12th chapter, what seems to be very near the end of Jesus' public ministry and, in fact, his life. We have arrived at Wednesday of Passion Week. And by Friday, as you know, he will be betrayed, beaten, and crucified. And until this moment in our reading, Jesus has been under heavy scrutiny from various religious groups, 
the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes have all took their respective turns trying to undermine his authority. They've been badgering him with questions, ones that they believe to be unanswerable in an attempt to stump him. They brought their favorite ace in the hole to the table to make him look foolish or to entrap him to saying something he ought not say. But one by one, with the finesse and ultimately his power, he answered uh, brilliantly, and they dared to ask him no more questions. And now it's time for him to do the talking. So as you can imagine, the words that we read this morning have been chosen by our Lord very carefully. And it's in his nature to do this anyway, but certainly this inclination would have been greater knowing that these may be some of the last words that he will ever speak publicly. What kind of message would bear such pertinence as to be the thing that he would say at this hour, at this stage in the game? It should come as no surprise to any of us who've been uh, around and been walking through this book together that the message has to do with a basic theological question, one that Mark has been talking about this whole time, something we've been asking, who is the Christ? Jesus is going to take center stage and ask a question, and in doing so, make an unequivocal declaration of his own identity. You might remember in Mark 8, we had that beautiful pronouncement from the lips of Peter. When asked, who do you say that I am? He looked Jesus in the eye and said, you are the Christ. And just some weeks ago in Mark chapter 10, we heard the cry of Bartimaeus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And there's another marker of his identity, the promised Messiah in the lineage of David, the anointed one who would come to heal, restore, and triumph. If you've been paying attention this morning, the words have been read, something might strike you as just a bit interesting. might cause you to flip back and forth in your, your Bible there or raise an eyebrow or scratch your head. Because in these verses we just read, it may seem like Jesus is not cool with the title Son of David. He stands before a great crowd and with the opportunity to solidify his identity, does he suddenly have a change of heart? Just ditches the whole Son of David thing like that was so two chapters ago. (laughs) I mean, did we get this wrong? After all, we introduced a song called Son of David. And if I'm being honest, I didn't pick that song. That came straight from the top, one of your elders. So they're the guys that really know what they're talking about, right? (laughs) Is Jesus saying that he, the Christ, is not, in fact, the son of David? I think what we're going to find is that Jesus knew something. He had an intuition. He knew that for one blind beggar to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And for a scribe to say that the Christ is the son of David, well, these were two entirely different things. Not only did they differ in tone, but they communicated completely different messages. They indicated a contrast in belief. The words might have been the same, but something very different going on up here and here. And Jesus, at this point, is going to take no risk when it comes to declaring and making clear who he is and what he came to do. So, as we beckon God's word this morning to reveal truth in these matters, let's first just take a moment. Let's ask that 
he would provide his wisdom, that we would have ears to hear and hearts equipped to receive it. Let's pray. Father, I am weak, and I am in need of your spirit this moment. Together we make up weak vessels who need your wisdom, who need you to reveal with clarity who you are. Father, use your word to do that this morning, to write truth on our hearts. Spirit, move in power that we might know you more, that we might call you our Lord, and that we might love you. We need you, Father, for these things. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so when you meet someone, or maybe you have a friend who likes movies, and I mean really, really likes movies, he's really into them, you might call that person a film buff. If you are at a wine tasting and someone's swirling their glass and they're identifying where the grapes were grown and all the subtle tasting notes, that person is a wine connoisseur. Thank you. Um, Walk into a coffee shop and uh, talk to the well-meaning barista. Maybe he's a bit over-energetic and he's a coffee... Thank you. Yeah, he's a coffee snob. I don't know how we get that designation uh, over the more flattering ones. Um, It's something that I ask myself, but I do think that while the answer is multifaceted, it's at least due in part to the fact that there is a legitimate culture of snobbery in the coffee community. And this does bug me a little bit. I don't lose sleep over it. Um, But it's also pretty funny at times. It can be pretty funny. You see, there comes a moment in the life of every coffee snob when they realize, "Uh uh-oh, I'm not the smartest one in the room. Because some five gen- five-star general snob has just shown up, and they're going to show just how much this person doesn't know anything. They're about to look really stupid. They're about to say something that in their ungrounded confidence they believe to be true, but Megatron snob is about to pull rank and show everyone that this guy doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. And the reason, I find this hilarious, the reason that this is not only a probable or possible scenario, but a common one is because we like to think that we have it all figured out. And when we think we have it all figured out, we really like to flaunt that. This goes beyond the coffee snob community, by the way. If anyone should need explanation, they needn't look any further than the all-knowing wise stage master, yours truly. But it only takes one person to come along and say, your understanding of this is so small. Look, you might be able to fool others, but, I mean, maybe even yourself. But I can assure you, you've got no idea what you're talking about. There's great disparity between those two. And that disparity between the know-nothing with a false sense of prideful confidence and the one who actually has sufficient knowledge is what we see working itself out in in the text this morning. Remember, until this moment, for several weeks, we've been hearing the stories of the religious elite, the all-star teams, just swinging with all their might to try to knock Jesus out of the intellectual ring. But because his words, they came with authority, and because his knowledge of God's word was free of any selfish or self-serving bias, and perhaps just maybe because he was, in fact, God incarnate, he rendered them silent. And now, in their stead, he seizes the opportunity to teach before the great crowd, with the religious groups standing nearby, 
he steps into the spotlight and offers a rebuttal. And it comes in the form of a question. It's aimed directly at the scribes. Let's read this again. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Riddle me this. David calls him Lord. How is he his son? One thing is clear here. It is that Jesus is trying to help us see that the framework that was built for the who the Christ was was far too small. The one that they called the son of David was in fact the Lord of all. It's our first point for this morning. The son of David was in fact the Lord of all. Now before we begin to unpack those words further, I want to also read the parallel account from Matthew chapter 22. I think it should help us to get a full, more well-rounded idea of this interaction. It says this, Jesus asked them, the scribes, a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So considering Matthew's account, we see that Jesus actually starts by evoking an answer out of them. He starts with that question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And you need to know how this would have come across to one of these scribes. Insultingly elementary. The same way that if I asked any of you who died on the cross, you'd just be like, Jesus. Duh, right? Like, is this a trick question? That's the simplest question you could have asked. This was a Sunday school level quiz. So their response, David, was not profound. If anything, it was reactionary. It's that simple for them. Whose son is the Christ? David's. Duh. And the reason this answer was so incredibly simple is because the Davidic sonship of the Messiah is an irrefutable and firmly established fact of the Old Testament. Okay, as we begin to explore Christ's words here, let's not throw out the baby at the bathwater. The Messiah, the Christ, is the son of David. We're talking about the implication of how the scribes perceived that information. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God establishes this covenant with David. He says, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And further reading of that covenant comes in Psalm 89. I have sworn an oath to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build up your throne for all generations. Now, in speaking of the Messiah, Isaiah chapter 9 reads, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. One more, Jeremiah 23 also says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, this branch he shall reign as king, 
and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. These words, they are crystal clear. The Christ, or the Messiah, would err from the line of David, and he would bring about the salvation of his people. The scribes knew their scripture. They were responding to a simple question with what they believed to be a safe and uncontestable answer. Much to their surprise, Jesus has something to say about it. He challenges it. How is it that you say he's the son of David? Why do you say that he is the son of David? And then, as a grounding for his argument, he proceeds to quote one of the most popular, widely known and memorized psalms of David. Both parties involved here, Jesus and the scribes, would have known and agreed upon that this is a psalm of David, 110, and that it was messianic in nature. So Jesus holds it up, and he says, well, if you believe that about the son of David, what do you make of this? Of these words that you seem to gloss over. If, if David calls him Lord right here, how is it that he is his son? We know from further reading in, these, in Matthew's account that this question left the scribes utterly dumbfounded. They just had, they had nothing in this moment. Once the men who are hurling theological zingers at Jesus, they no longer can conjure a single intelligible word. But let's not make the mistake of thinking that he had the same motivation as them when they were hurling their questions. He didn't seek to be the smartest guy in the room or to entrap them or to make them look foolish. He did not ask, the same, he did not ask his question for the same reason that they did. His was posed as an act of compassion. In what might be a final-ditch effort before the cross to win hearts to himself. And we know this is true by what exactly it is that he is trying to correct about their theology. He's not merely the son of David, he is Lord. And what you believe about the Christ as Lord has eternal ramifications. None would deny that Christ would be the son of David. That very title son of David, was for all intents and purposes a synonym for Messiah. It's why the cry Bartimaeus, son of David, holds so much weight, because it is a public acknowledgement of Christ as the Messiah. So again, none would deny this, the Davidic sonship of Christ. But what was plain to Jesus, where the scribes fell tragically short, was that they believed Christ was merely the son of David. That is to say, he was just a man who would have to fall in the right family tree. To be David's son was a matter of genealogy and nothing more. Sure, the Christ would bring about the restoration of Israel, but he would be an earthly king, a man. At the end of the day, he's just a son of David, just a box to check. As you might imagine, that does not limit the pool of applicants very much. David had a few descendants by this point. Jesus, in begging this question, he does a few things. First, and this will be slightly tangential, but I do find it very important, he employs good exposition of God's word. Don't miss this. 
Do you notice how remarkably not complex his argument is? He just points to a verse and goes, what about that? We have to see this. He holds up God's word as authoritative and says, what do you make of this? Brothers and sisters, we don't get to cherry pick the verses that we like or we can understand. We beg the Holy Spirit for clarity in reading all of God's word. If in reading God's word, you think that's not my God, then your God is not God. See how that works? It's that simple. So Jesus forces them to reckon with David's words as they are written. Another thing he does is to shed light on the inspiration of Scripture. Was David confused when he said this? Maybe he was a slip of the tongue. Maybe he was sick that day, a little foggy in the head. No. He said these things, according to Christ, in the Holy Spirit. So, for David to call the Messiah the Lord of all was nothing short of divine revelation. These words are trustworthy and true. Lastly, and most importantly, Jesus corrects course for anyone with the lackluster, under, lackluster understanding of the Christ. It is the shortest Bible story, study in history. Two verses. <laughs> Psalm 110. Son of David is the Lord of all. Done. And yet, this revelation was of inconceivable magnitude. That David's son, mind you, his descendant, his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, there's a few more in there, but you get the picture, would be his Lord. How often do you call your kids Lord? Hopefully not often. There's another sermon for that someday, I'm sure. Um, calling him Lord, you can just feel the, the scribes. Well, but, but God, hold on, that's, that's, that's the word we reserve for God. Indeed, you got it. Nailed it. Remember that passage from Jeremiah 23? I read just a moment ago about the branch of David, the one who would bring about salvation and safe dwelling. It reads this as well. This is what he will be named. So we're getting a name for the Messiah now, the son of David. He will be named Yahweh, our righteousness. Yahweh. Not a name to be taken lightly. The name for the holy God of all. Again, what they do with that? Jesus was saying plainly and with the full authority of God and his word, the Messiah is not merely David's son as you believe him to be. He is God himself. And having made numerous claims of divinity in his own ministry, they all knew what Jesus was saying here. He was making a public declaration of his own identity. He was the Christ, the son of David. His disciples knew it. Many of his public followers believed it to be true. And he'd used the title, son of David, to describe himself. By extension, his case here for Messiah's Lord, as stated by David, was his own revelation as God incarnate, the son of David, Jesus himself, was Lord of all. This message was not lost on the scribes or anyone listening. And from their lips, nothing. Silence. Although you can't imagine how they probably felt about it. 
opposed. Not in favor. Generally not fans of what he's saying before them. Verse 37 indicates that the great throng heard him gladly. Other, vo- other translations say this, the great crowd was listening in delight. I think it's safe to assume that that excludes the scribes, that they were not in the crowd that was listening with delight. And perceiving this, Jesus continues to teach, having laid the groundwork for the son of David being the Lord of all, but he's going to move into what I'm going to call picture number one. We will see two pictures, each one depicting a different way to live in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. How do we, what does it look like to live as though he is Christ of all or deny that he is uh, Lord of all? And the first depiction is that of the scribes. Remember them? The gentleman who uh, just lost an epic battle of Bible trivia? The ones who uh, have just been asked to reevaluate their most fundamental belief? Also the dudes who are probably still standing like right there? He hoists them up as an example. And it's not favorable. Picture number one, denying Christ as Lord. That's what it's going to look like. He says this, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. First, let's talk about that word, beware. Other versions use the phrase, watch out. It is the only bit of application that Jesus provides in this picture, so it is important. It's also quite simple. Keep a steady eye on them. Do not let your gaze get lazy. Be diligent in keeping watch for them. To beware of something is to accept that it poses an imminent danger, right? Beware of the dog. Beware electric fence. Beware the Ides of March. And why... What threat do the scribes pose? It's a fair question. If I'm to be aware of something, I want to know what danger I'm in, right? The dog's going to bite, the fence might shock, and the Ides of March may get a bit pointy. Uh, What gives with the scribes? Jesus clues us in, verse 40. They will receive the greater condemnation. The danger of the scribes, and thus a call for diligent eyes, is this, to be influenced by and live according to unbiblical doctrine, in particular as it pertains to your understanding of Christ, is to ensure the destruction of your souls. Let's not miss this. Let's not take this lightly. Condemnation. This is the danger of which Jesus is making us aware. Now, mind you, these same individuals will turn hateful and murderous very soon. And Jesus is fully aware of this fate. He himself has foretold his death three times by this point. And yet, he still says that their true danger lies not in them being bloodthirsty or vengeful, but in the deadliness of their poor doctrine. As one pastor puts it, you cannot be wrong in your Christology, your doctrine of Christ, and receive the gift of eternal salvation. This is tier one. This is of the highest importance. 
This is a warning and is a matter of life or death. So, beware of the scribes. What does this picture look like? A picture of those who would deny Christ as Lord. According to Jesus, it looks like them. Note the kinds of things that they take pleasure in. If you look back in your copy of Scripture there, they like for the general public to offer greetings to them. They like to have been sitting in the fancy chairs in the highest places of honor at church. They like to wear flashy garments that distinguish them from the common people. They like to be heard offering the most elegant and extensive prayers, which Jesus notes is just total bogus anyway. What's the common denominator here? It's all about me, me, me. And in the most despicable way, by way of feigned religiosity, they were pursuing their own glory. They would leverage their religious and their political influence so as to bring attention to themselves. Not only is this a small-minded and an ultimately transparent effort, but it is also a futile one. Make no mistake, God does not share His glory. The moment our public worship becomes more about how we appear to others than about God Himself, brothers and sisters, we are in grave danger. So, beware. At the heart of this issue... The scribes denied Christ as Lord of all because each of them desired to be Lord himself. You see, they were probably fine with Messiah being David's son. Just another man, even if it meant that he would be king. But David's Lord? No, 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 no. We can't have that. They were pursuing that themselves. This man would challenge that. And this pursuit was done at great expense, as Jesus indicates, as we have discussed, to the detriment of their souls, but also to the everyday life of those around them. Jesus says that they would devour widows' houses. They would target those disadvantaged, those alone with no support system, and take whatever they wanted, just use up their resources, their money, and bleed the widow dry and take her for all she's worth and just move on. I think it's worth saying here because, fortunately, we're not without modern-day examples of this. If you ever perceive that a Christian leader has their own best interests at heart or that their primary motivation is monetary or that their ministry comes at great expense to others, particularly the, the disadvantaged, run as fast as you can in the other direction. And remember that the danger they pose is the influence they have over what you believe about Jesus. Be careful, be diligent, keep an eye. What you believe about Jesus has eternal ramifications. Just as Jesus wraps up this picture of the religious elite devouring widows' houses, the scene changes and we get a glimpse into a singular moment, a tiny little snapshot into the life of one widow, Maybe she's one that has been targeted by them. We don't know. We don't know from these verses, but we do know that this widow is poor. She has very little money left to her name. And this little peek into her life, uh, I would contend to you that it is absolutely beautiful. And it serves as our second picture. What it looks like to embrace Christ as Lord. 
These verses are often employed to provide a sermon about giving, and no doubt they can teach us much about that topic. But it is also a passage of Scripture about faith and about belief, where your allegiance lies in your heart, recognizing what is of true value and worthy of our most generous praise. Okay? Now, in case you're anything like me, sorry, uh, no, in case you're anything like me and you have an overly logical and cold mind, I want, you to, I want to help you understand why Jesus so speak, speaks so highly of our offering. You see, that cold and logical thing that goes on in my brain says something like this, and maybe you relate. Okay, granted, I get it. She gave away all that she had. But come on, like, it was a penny, right? If I had a penny, I'd be just as willing to part with that penny. I don't want pennies. They're annoying. And besides, if we're just being realists, the church can do far more with the millions that these other rich rulers are coming in and just dumping into the offering box. And that's why it's so hard to understand why Jesus would see her offering of greater value. Well, a couple of context elements, and you might see this in a different light. I know it certainly helped me and orient my heart in the right place around this, around this story. Given that we're very close to Passover, a lot of people are making their way into the city to give their offerings, most of them very, very wealthy. This is the time when the richest of the rich come to make their offerings, and it's all coinage, right? So the bigger the offering, the more noise it makes, the more raucous it would be. There would be trumpet every time there's, a, every time there's an offering, parades, celebrations. It was all about being seen as a pious individual. Sound familiar? Picture number one, when you're your own Lord, not embracing Christ as Lord. And perhaps while others were paying attention to the next oncoming parade, this, well, this poor widow just makes her way up quietly to the offering box and plink, plink, two little coins. Says it in some makes up a penny. Now, it's not a penny the way we think of it, of course. This is not U.S. dollars in first century Jerusalem. Uh, but it came out to be about 164th of a day's pay. So let's say you're laboring at minimum wage in the States, it's about a dollar and three. A dollar and three cents is what her offering comes out to be. Have you ever had a dollar and three cents in your bank account? Okay, I can assure you that it's not fun. Um, <laughs> because with a penny, like I said, uh, I'd be inclined to just get rid of it if I saw it on the ground, I probably wouldn't even pick it up. But with a dollar, with a dollar and three cents, well, I can strut right into Aldi and pick up a loaf of split-top wheat and hack it till the next paycheck, right? That's surviving money. It says it's all she had to live on. But this widow, she believed God to be so supremely valuable that he was worth it all. Wealthy folks gave, but they didn't feel that. It was just some of the very large amount of money that they had. It was dispensable. The widow, however, sacrificed her hope of a next meal. She must have known and believed that her true hope was in Christ, her Lord, and the Lord of all. This is what it looks like to embrace Him as your Lord. You see, giving, it's not about, propor- or it's not about portion, but proportion. And for the widow, the Lord was worth all that she had. I would urge you now, 
to consider a couple things yourself. Because so far, we've been looking in at this interaction between the scribes, and we've been looking at these two pictures, and we've been very impassively involved with these verses. But we don't get off that easy. Saying, shame on the scribes, or three cheers for the widow. No, I would ask you now, in the same vein as Christ's question, what do you make of this? God's word merits our response each and every time. And I would submit to you that there are at least two ways that we can respond this morning. First, if you profess Christ as your Lord, you may want to use these verses as a litmus test of sorts. Have you studied God's word with honesty and integrity in such a way that you're willing to embrace God as he is, not as it is convenient for you or how you would like him to be? And does your life demonstrate a belief that Jesus is the Lord of all? By that I mean, are your actions those of humility, kindness towards others, generosity, worship, and sacrifice? Would Jesus characterize your faith as great proportion or just a portion of your life? Do you look more like the scribes? Do you come here to church so that others will think well of you? Do you lead a Bible study so that others will think you are smart? Do you play in the band so others will think that you are talented? You preach. You teach. So that others will see you standing up here. Beware the way that leads to destruction. Keep your sights set on Jesus. He is our great king and he is worthy of our supreme affection. He is the Lord of all. And secondly, you might be someone here today who has no category for Jesus as Lord. Maybe this is silly to you. Maybe it's just a bit much, like, Lord, come on. Or maybe it's just new to you, and that's okay. I'm going to follow Christ's lead, and I'm going to ask you this. What do you do with this? Look, you've got to deal with this sooner or later. If you're here and you are the least bit interested, any one of us, we're just going to crack this puppy open, and we're going to start reading it with you. And this is, we're going to stand firm on the authority of God's word. Praise God we're in a church that does that. In our scripture, it leaves no room for a lesser version of Jesus. He is the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, the son of David, the Messiah, the Lord of all, the king of kings. He is not merely a man or a son but the sovereign. He is also, and this is key, the great high priest, who though infinite in power and glory, surrendered his throne to become a man, to live in our world and be burdened with the same trials and temptations, to eventually hang on a cross and accept the due punishment for our sins. This is our Lord, that he would bring us to himself, that we might see him in his glory, and worship and enjoy him for all eternity. Again, this is our Lord. I would urge you, if you've denied him as your Christ on either side of salvation, if you're living as though it's the case or you genuinely aren't there yet, 
come home to your Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us to keep a diligent eye on the things, the teachings that would lead us astray. Help us to see you for who you genuinely are, Jesus. Not merely a man, a carpenter, a son of Mary, a son of David, but the King of kings. Father, let this have implications on our whole life, that we would submit to you. Father, help us to see you as supremely valuable. We want to know you. Give us your wisdom, your insight, your ways above our ways. We need them, Father, that we might know you, we might love you more. We thank you, Father, for who you are, for sending your Son. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.